Hey everybody, this is Eric Wright. I'm the host of the Disco Posse podcast. I'm super proud because this is the first launch of 2020. This is episode number 94 with Charity Major. She's the co-founder of Honeycomb.io, somebody who's just an incredible person, an incredible engineer, who's gone some through an amazing transformation over the last little while with what's going on in Honeycomb. We're going to talk about what observability is, what it isn't, why the entire industry is using the term wrong, and really, most importantly, we're going to talk about some of the toughest questions about being a founder, and Charity's going to surprise you with some of the things that you hear. This is a great lesson for, for folks in startups. It's a great lesson in general for anybody who's looking in IT. Uh, so please, enjoy. And with that, let's get started. Hey, thanks for, for coming on today. I fight the industry on one phrase that drives me nuts, which is on-premise and the continuous battle that it's on-premises. And so I know that that is my Sisyphean uh, sort of boulder that I have to carry continuously because it keeps rolling back down the hill on me. Mm -hmm. And I know you've got a much bigger boulder because <laughs> not only is it a word, but it's an industry practice that mm -hmm. people are pretty much have no effing idea what they mean when they say it so uh, yeah Good i time. thought there's no better person <laughs> to to share the pain of of how words mean things than than with you on words this one. do mean things holy shit <laughs> they <should> anyway. <laughs> that's right so i think i'm not even going to do the regular intro um but i'll uh uh just because I'm, I'm trying to get get smarter about this and actually do like the intro after the fact and then glue it on the front. Uh, but with that, oh, nice. I think that um, I think we'll just get right right into it. And I'll I'll give you the quick story uh, how this got started. This is I was just reading through your website over here. I had a a funny thing that happens recently because my team at Turbonomic we we've been talking about how to be sort of more relevant to the developer audience and really kind of emote the value of what we can mm -hmm. do in in the platform mm -hmm. and it's funny and i say the word emote very specifically because it's not about like i can show you numbers i can show you graphs I can, like mm -hmm. show it that it actually means something what actually means something to the person so when they look at this and they say like ooh, you know pain red whatever it's going to be mm -hmm. like what's the thing that really legitimately makes them like wince when they see it and then from there how can i through doing something with them through software mm -hmm. make them wince less like that's mm -hmm. legitimately how i think about approaching the problem statement and here's how i can solve this problem mm -hmm. what i did was i i worked with this our amazing advanced engineering team and we said let's take some open source products 
and kind of package them together. So it's much mm -hmm. easier to deploy. And so we said, we'll attack the problem of Kubernetes and understanding the kind of relationships between applications down to infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So we're like relating through uh, Istio, we're using Kiali, we're using traffic, we're using a couple of different products. We just like packaged up the build. Uh, this is really cool because my engineering team uses this stuff all the time. And then we had to name it. And so we said, what are we going to call this thing that we share with the world? And I said, well, let's talk about it as, you know, visibility and, and topology. And they said, and I said, and be careful, because I know the word you're about to stick in here. You're going to call it an observability tool. <laughs> and so I thought, I'm sitting in this large boardroom and I've got like little charity on my shoulder mm -hmm. screaming in my ear going, this is not observability. <laughs> charity majors, you are, you are the queen of observability. You created this and I think of you as like, not just creating it as a, a practice, but like at least making it well used, well known. Trying and to make it a thing. Yeah, so I'm here to let you defend to the world why we as an industry have no idea what observability really is and and why are we doing why are we talking about it in the wrong way sure sounds great let's do so, it so let's actually start honeycomb uh well, let's get caught up with folks who may have heard the first podcast honeycomb's had some really wicked stuff that's happened you had funding announcements in the last couple of months your your team is growing you're showing up at more and more events uh i'm excited and it's probably the the whole business is kind of evolving as you're going to like the kind of next stage of, of where you are. Yeah, it, it will be four years on January 1st. Wow. It will be how long we've been doing this. I know, right? It's your founderversary, I guess you'd say. Founderversary, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, it, and it is very different. You know, for the first two, three years, I felt like I was yelling into the wind, you know? Uh, it, it, like I've never been one of those kids who's like, I'm going to be a founder. You know, I'm an entrepreneur. Like, fuck those guys. You know, <laughs> like this was born out of anger for me. This was born out of, I had had this really powerful experience that I couldn't ignore where, you know, I was running this platform. I was running Parse and it was, it was, it was down all the time. Like we were failing, like our, our reliability was terrible. And it wasn't because we were, we were actually, this was the best engineering team I had ever worked on doing all of the quote unquote right things. Um, we were doing, you know, some things a little bit before our time, we were doing microservices before their microservices and, and so forth, but like we were doing the right things and yet we had no idea what was going on in our systems. And every day someone would come and be like, Parse is down, you know? And I'd be like, Parse is not down. Like behold <laughs> my wall full of dashboards. Like everything is green. Um, because I couldn't answer for every single application, you know, maybe Dizzy's doing four requests per second and I'm doing a hundred thousand requests per second, never even show up in my dashboards. So I'd have to go track down by hand, right? Oh, I just lost your audio for some reason. Probably because I leaned on the mute button. <laughs> I started waving around and gesticulating, and I got I, very I, that's, excited. That's why I appreciate the excitement. This is you and I both would get into this game. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I, you know, I'd had this experience, and 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 then it, 
you know, and then using this Facebook tooling that it allowed us to just break down by that one user in a million and then every combination of everything else. And, and the experience that I had had was that, you know, it went from taking days to explain these very, you know, complex situations to, to like seconds, like, like it wasn't even an engineering problem anymore. It was a support problem. It was, it was just like, you know, and that, and that experience was so profound for me that like when I was leaving Facebook, you know, I wasn't planning to start a company. I was planning to go work at Slack or Stripe or something. And then I went, oh shit, like, I don't know how to engineer anymore without this <laughs> stuff. You know, it, it's become so core, so fundamental to how I experience the world. And it's not just about problems. It's not just about the sites down or just, you know, users are complaining. It's about how I interact with my systems. It's how I know what I should build. It's how I validate that something is worth building. It's how I, I gain confidence in it at the at every stage. It's like, it's like my five senses. And the idea of going back to the battle days when I would just have these aggregates, like it's, my ego couldn't take it, you know, <laughs> like I would be so much less powerful than I was. And, and, and it was just unthinkable. So, but when we started building this thing, like, you know, the hardest thing with, and, and like the tech was non-trivial, like we had to start out by building a storage engine. Like there's nothing out there that can just handle high cardinality dimensions, any number of them combined together at a time, you know, just throw strings, like any data type in there that you want and just like, you know, we, but like the hardest problem was not the tech. The hardest problem was figuring out how to talk about it because every term is so overloaded. Right. Everybody's using the same words. Everybody's saying the same thing. Everybody's like, you know, we're going to, you know, help you get the site up faster and we're going to, you know, gonna understand your stuff. And like listening to them, I, like I went, I went through several crises of faith. I'm like, should we even build this? Because you listen to New Relic and they say that they've built this already. They're very sure of it. You know, Datadog says that they've built this already and they're very convincing. Those demos look great, right? But, but I knew that I had used their tools and they hadn't worked. And that, that's all I knew, right? Like everything else was just a giant leap of faith. And it was over the course of the first couple of years that, that we started figuring out what exactly, what was the difference? What was the difference in the tools? You know, and there's, I've written about this like exhaustively, but like um, all of the things that make it possible for you to answer unknown unknowns, right? Without being able to predict them in advance without knowing that they're going to happen without being able to say, you know, oh, this is definitely going to break. So we should aggregate it. We should capture this metric in this format so we can ask this question. You know, like you just have to, with, with modern systems, you kind of have to declare bankruptcy and just, just be very comfortable with the fact that you cannot predict what's going to happen. <laughs> and you shouldn't really even try, right? I love that. And <clears throat> you, you hit on something right there is the, I, sometimes you just have to like erase the slate yeah. and just say like, okay, what's, what's happening now? Right. Yeah. And it, it's, it, we just continuously, now there's, there's definitely, there's influences of kind of like historical tribal knowledge, like some, like there are some, you know, very specific application things that, that occur behaviors. Well, we got away with this for a long time. Down, right. But it's because, when you had a monolith and you had a small, small number of components, you could build a system with a lamp stack, look at it, size it up, basically predict 80% of the ways it would ever fail, right? Yeah. And then over the next few months, you'd find out the rest of them. And then those same things would just happen over and over and over in different, you know, guises. And so like we, we, 
learn to debug, I put that in air quotes, mostly by relying on our intuition and our experiences in the past and just kind of pattern matching, right? Like what are we doing when we look at a dashboard? We're pattern matching, we're not debugging, we're not thinking systematically through what we're seeing and what all the symptoms are, you know, we're just going, uh, that smells like redis. And then you go and yeah. check in redis, oh, yep, must have been redis, right? Which is which is a whole lot of, you know, it worked really well for a long time. And it's, it's been slowly working less and less and less well for people. And, and a lot of people um, haven't realized it until they literally just fall off a cliff. And, and suddenly, like, every day, like, they just have no clue what's going on in their systems. And they're like, what the fuck? I'm paying millions of dollars. And, like, why aren't my tools helping me here? Well, it undermines the confidence in any team <clears throat> because oh, they're, yeah. you're – you're by design, you're wrong more than you're right. Yeah. And because you're expected to give answers rapidly to the business side of the organization, mm -hmm. you, you're caught out in these kind of war room scenarios all the time going like, well, we, it could be this. We used to always yeah. know you're like, oh, there you go. It was, you know, I, I, I just literally I've, I've reread and actually listened to the Unicorn Project like three times in the last mm -hmm. month because I did a pre-review of it. Uh, Gene Kim does uh, obviously a phenomenal job of kind of telling the, the story that's legitimate technical lessons you get out of this this human story mm -hmm. and he uses observability in there so I was super proud I'm like just say honeycomb just say it uh, and, but to they talk about this idea of you know even though we knew always knew what what led to it all of a sudden you've got new things and you've got to immediately go back yeah. into tracing and mm -hmm. the world is going to be scarier by design yeah. and it's yeah. cool it's but great. don't take it's the same amazing. shitty tools in <laughs> yeah they just don't work like i i i often use the oop did i lose you oh, oh i lost good. you there for a second okay I, I i often use the metaphor of like the electrical grid like if you, the electrical grid is like the type of metaphor that we should have in mind when we're building our systems. You cannot predict where a tree is going to fall over on Main Street and take down the power, you know, in some small state in Iowa. You can't predict that those things are going to happen. You know, like, that some of these things will happen, like, in, in general terms, but you don't know where it's going to happen. And any energy that you put into trying to predict where lightning is going to strike is just literally wasted, right? Yeah. So where do you put that energy? Well, you put it into instrumentation. You put it into having the ability to gather information at the right level of abstraction so that you have, when you need to go ask a new, a new question, you have the right data there in the right shape so that you can actually answer it so that you can quickly detect it and you can quickly isolate what the problem is, where it is, what happened so that you can resolve it. So I, I want to go to the very core question that I think anybody should ask themselves and, and think of it. What is observability? So if I say like define colon observability in Chrome, yeah. what will it come back as and why is it right or wrong? Yeah. So like I, like I said, I was really struggling with how to talk about this stuff. And then I, I happened to Google the definition for observability because I had heard it used just as a generic synonym for telemetry. It was kind of in, in the air. But when I read the definition, it's, it's basically, it's, it's a, it comes from mechanical engineering. The observability of the system is the mathematical dual of the controllability of the system. And it refers to how much can you understand what's happening inside the system just by observing it from the outside. And that's when lightning bells just kind of went off in my head. And I was just like, 
oh my God, this is exactly what we're trying to do. This is exactly what's different about what we're doing versus like monitoring. You know, monitoring is very black boxy. You've got one observer looking at another thing, just checking up on it, right? How are you doing? Yeah. Are you within thresholds? This is about getting inside the system and having it explain itself back to you so that whatever state it's in, whether you've ever experienced it before or not, you can just using your tool, you can understand what that state was. And, and, and so like, like that, that's, 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 that's what's at the core of it. Uh, And, and you could also say that it's about the unknown unknowns, right? Monitoring is about known unknowns. Observability is about unknown unknowns. Um, That's what's philosophically interesting. Now, when you try and translate that into technical requirements, this is where, you know, everybody's now like, ah, we do observability too. And I'm like, well, okay. But as far as I can tell, and I could be wrong, right? I, I worked backwards and I came up with like, okay, here's a set of things that I think you need in order to answer any question. Like you need to have arbitrarily wide events because you can't predict in advance what data you're going to need. So anything that has a schema or relies on indexing, that's all, those are all just ways of picking data before the fact, right? right? So you, you can't have any of that stuff. They need to be arbitrarily wide structured events. Um, they need to be high cardinality because the most identifying information is always the highest cardinality stuff, every unique ID, every, right? Um, which means that anything that's metrics-based is just straight out because metrics can't do any of that, right? right. Uh, metrics have tossed away, they've discarded all of the connective tissue of the, of the event before they ever write out to disk the first time. Anything with pre-aggregation is out because every time you pre-aggregate, you're making assumptions about what kind of questions you're going to need to ask in the future. Uh, it, I think that you need a columnar store because I think you need to be able to access, you know, ask questions. Um, you, you speed matters. I, you know, you want to be asking and iterating lots of small questions as quickly as you can ask them, not like composing a query and having to go to the bathroom or get coffee or something. <laughs> yeah. Right? It can't break your flow, right? Because this is a very different way. It's a very different mental mind model. It's a very different approach. You're not like. Can you imagine if like we gave our our business folks who are trying to understand user behavior, if we just gave them a bunch of dashboards to flip through, just like, well, okay, you're trying to understand this incredibly complex, you know, user interaction. So just flip through the dashboards and see which one best describes the scenario that you think you're seeing. Yes, right. Just look at you like you're batshit. Like that's insane. Mm -hmm. But that's what we do when we're debugging our systems, right? When instead what you need to be doing is like start at the edge and just start breaking, you know, like like, uh, if you're like, uh, oh, there's a spike. Things are slow, right? So traditionally, we just start going, ah, oh, maybe it's Redis. Ah, oh, maybe it's MySQL. But instead, like with observability, you have all the information, you have all the raw requests there. So you just break down by like, okay, um, what's slow? Uh, break down by endpoint, maybe. Uh, okay, uh, all the right endpoints seem to be slower. Is it all of the right endpoints or is it only some of them? Uh, no, it's just the right endpoints that are going to the storage engine. Is it all of the right endpoints that are going to the, no, it's just the ones that are, you know, going to the primaries in this availability zone. Is it all of it? You know, and you just like, follow the trail of breadcrumbs. And what people don't get is that this takes, this takes away the guessing, the guesswork, the, the, the big, are we ever going to figure it out or not? That's that big right. fat question mark, right? It's like, yes, you're going to find it. You're going to find it every time because you're just following the data where it takes you. Well, and the funny thing is there's a sense of <clears throat> trust and distrust of like, we want to know. We as humans are, are just for and whatever reason, curious. we love to be right about something. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, and so we don't like guesswork, but yet we're 
we love using guesswork to get to the right answer. We, and we usually back into it. I mm -hmm. almost invariably, it's more survivorship bias and confirmation yeah. bias than it is actual like forward data-driven investigations yes. that lead to it's that dopamine thesis, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 it's but the funny thing is we get to the same result, mm -hmm. but there's this weird confidence in like you said, it's literally a dopamine-driven confidence that we yeah. were the ones that led the machine there. Yeah. And I, I it was a, a neat thing that I I was you know kind of tapped onto the story and a few different things I've been reading and research papers and such. Cause I'm a really weird nerd. And I now like, I'm officially that guy now that goes through like patent of applications and research papers sure. <laughs> and going through and talking about like AI and why are people afraid of trusting this stuff, like throwing data into a pile, using an engine in order to derive information about mm -hmm. it and then pulling back from that and, and trusting it. Mm -hmm. And it was a neat thing of eye color and an eye are a retinal, uh, retinal prediction of sex and and lifestyle hmm. and so they've actually had a few different studies that have been done that's showing that through ai and through ml that they've been able to actually use some of the the, the medical tools in order to through retinal pattern recognition predict sex with an 80 plus percent success rate through retinal imaging no doctor on earth knows why yeah but yeah. the machine knows. And so we've got this stupid thing where they're like, did the machine, is the machine now going to run away and do something that we distrust? You know, I feel like this is all pretty overblown. Like, I feel like what we need to do is let the machines do what machines are good at and let humans do what humans are good at. And the fact is that like any machine can, can find a pattern, right? Can pull out a spike, a dip, whatever, but only a human can assign meaning to that. You know, maybe I wanted that spike. Maybe that was a good spike. Maybe I was That's looking right. forward to it. You know, maybe I did something on purpose. Like, it, it has no meaning until a human assigns meaning. So, like something that we've built into Honeycomb. Like, I just, I just described this long sort of like trail of you know that you can follow with breadcrumbs. But like, that's a lot of stuff that uh, is pretty repetitive and, and as soon as you know your data set and you kind of know what guesses to make so what we did with honeycomb because um, for ages like users would be like this all sounds great but can you just tell me what to look at and i would start <laughs> arguing with them and i'd be like no you don't blah 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 and then like three years later i finally went huh what if we could <laughs> you know and so like our amazing data this guy uh daniel fisher he built this thing called a um, bubble up where you see a spike you want to understand it you draw a little bubble around it and we pre-compute for all the dimensions hundreds of dimensions we pre-compute everything inside the bubble you, that you drew and outside of it and then we diff them and sort them so that all the ways that the bubble you're interested in are different from the surrounding landscape just like trickle to the top so you can see at a glance oh these five things have to break or these all of all of these errors share these char characteristics which is which is phenomenal because if you're guessing one by one you're probably not going to guess all of them. You're going to find one or two and go, aha, I have the answer and not recognize that there are like half a dozen other things that you could have found, right? Yeah. So like, I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot there. We feel very strongly, and this has been hard for us sales-wise um, because we're passionate believers that the human must always be in the driver's seat. Now, most of our competitors out there are, are, 
are making themselves fantastically wealthy by telling CTOs and CEOs that they can make their people replaceable. <laughs> Just give us tens of millions of dollars and you don't have to trust your people to understand anything. And in, in my mind, that is a lie. Um, somebody somewhere always has to understand what's going on. And it's in your interest to democratize that and to make it more accessible and more possible for you to learn from each other and piggyback off of each other's you know, findings and expertise. And like every, so everything that we do is, is oriented towards just like giving you what you need when you need it so that it feels effortless, um, but having you with the original intent always steering the ship. Yeah, and it's, there is a definite thing of like that, the anecdotal experience, the ability to take it into a, like a business, map it to a business outcome. Like those are human traits that we have to have. And it's, yeah. I, I'm a hundred percent with this thing. I, I, the only thing I dread about when we talk is that we're in violent agreement. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I got to come up with some good <laughs> contrarian stuff. I can, I can have it going, but this, this sort of funny and even like the simplest possible correlative thing I actually had was like a, a massive environment and just a, like a, a tiny version of kind of what you talked about. Someone says like, Oh, we're having a problem where this application froze because you know, your platform did something. And so now we distrust it and like, okay, mm. cool. So what's, what was the actual problem? Mm-hmm. And even in the, the small, you know, relative amount of data compared to what we could be gathering, we were to go and say like, okay, well, so here was a problem. We had a memory spike. So mm-hmm. we made a decision and we moved this machine from one, one place to another. And then it caused this, you know, but they're like, why, why would it do that? There was actually no problem. Like it looked like everything was okay on the system. And I said, okay, well, hold on a second. So you got memory. Okay. And then you've got CPU. All right. Simple things. Now you've got network and storage. So even just four very, very simple things, four simple things relative. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I've run data centers at pretty decent scale. So I know where this problem is. So you got a memory problem, right? You're running virtualization. So what happens when you have a memory problem on your virtual machine? It starts eating the crap out of your host. So what does your host do? Well, it does what it's supposed to do. It uses things like ballooning and stuff like that. Okay, good. But it's a super busy environment. It's a huge machine. So what did it do? It exhausted the host. So now it has no virtual memory swapping. So where's it going to swap to? It's going to swap to disk. Bingo. We trace it down. We look and there's a disc controller, like just, it just blasts the disc controller, stuns the, the disc attached to it, froze the SQL application, front end web application goes down for 12 seconds. And they're like, but like when you glue it all together, like that was the thing. And if you don't use a tool to drive to that data, I was only lucky enough because it's like, I've done this. I had to deal with that exact situation over and over again. But for somebody that didn't know that, they had to dig in and, yeah. and it's like, oh, now they know what to look for from that point forward. Yeah. It looks like magic because it is magic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I always do. It's funny. I, I, I laugh. I always show people that when you take something and it, ma- it looks incredibly smooth and magical, it's just because I've done it 10,000 times yeah. and that's why it seems that way. And, yeah. But the data problem that you talked about is there's no other better way to describe it. It's a fucking complex problem, right? There's, this is something that has to be put into a system. And then we have to learn to use the system in order to derive meaningful business information out of it. Yes. And it's much more like the process of debugging code than it is like traditional monitoring and ops. You know, like 
I mean, a lot of this is being driven, like the, the spike in complexity in systems is being driven by the shift to microservices and to polyglot persistence and to, you know, containerization and scheduler. Like now, instead of having one thing, well, in the name of reliability and resiliency, we have blown that up into many, many, many things um, without realizing that we were also inflicting on ourselves this, <laughs> the consequence of it now being unmanageable using our old tools. Yeah. Now the and this is the the fun of when you look in in the industry and you see other folks kind of co-opting the term observability. I imagine that must be tough because it puts you in an uncomfortable position where you have to defend the term yeah, as much know. as you have to defend the practice. Like, do you find that, or, or as I know, I get this all the time where you know, people say, "Like, how are you different than X?" I'm like, "Yeah, we 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 solve a different problem." You know, I've and let me explain why, of- right? <laughs> I've been kind of amazed that despite every other vendor in the industry, like putting lots of money and muscle behind saying we do observability too. If you go to any conference, every conference I've been to, all of the talks, the speakers have given the right definition. And I don't know. And I think that, I don't know that 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 percolates down into like, you know, the median engineer who doesn't go to conferences, but I've been heartened by that because what it tells me is that people recognize that we're kind of fucked if if we don't differentiate here you know if we don't like if if observability just becomes a generic synonym for telemetry again then what term are we going to use for these new practices and these new you know technical characteristics that are like and, and i'm not trying to shit on monitoring at all it's incredibly essential Right. It is not, a, it's a mature tool set, but it's essential and, it, and it's good shit. But, but for the use case that is increasingly the use case that so many engineers have, it is different from observability. Now, my hope is that I believe that many vendors are working furiously behind the scenes to try and get these capabilities in their own tooling. My hope is that once a few of them have achieved it, they will be just as intense about policing the boundaries of it as I am. Because like, honestly, I... I want Honeycomb to succeed, but if I have, if I had to choose between Honeycomb, like going under, but the concept taking off and and having real meaning, um, or, you know, Honeycomb being a wild success and the observability concept just kind of getting, you know, muddled and and lost, I would choose to lose Honeycomb. (laughs) Like, this is how important it is to me. And I've had this opportunity many times to like, you know, just build a faster horse and buggy, you know, that's what all the users have been asking for is better metrics, you know, we could have done that many times over, but like the, 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 the powerfulness of this experience that both Christine and I had had just made that not, it's a non-starter. So yeah, it irritates me to be policing the boundaries of it, but I don't mind it as long as, um, as long as it's clear that I do it from a place of love. (laughs) I do it from a place of this needs to exist in the world or y'all are just going to be screwed. Right. I'm not doing (laughs) it like for my own personal gain, um, which I think a lot of people assume that I am and it is what it is. Well, and you've, you've done something which is very admirable that you're saying like, look, I, I want the practice to be common and democratized. I want to, I want things to get better for engineers. If it means that I'm the, I'm the first stage of the rocket that falls off the bottom yes. as we send it to the next stage. <laughs> and for that very reason, I, I firmly believe you will never only be the first stage of the rocket. Oh. And, and I think that 
if I was, I tell you, if I was a betting person, or if I was in an M&A position, every major organization in the that's the Cisco's and the VMware's and the, and the like, they've, they've got, they already had a gap with APM and they're mm. filling that one. Mm-hmm. This is next. And yeah. this is what I love that seeing the, the relationship because the developer audience is incredible because they're doing yeah. amazing things. And like you said, it's, these are problems that aren't easy to repeat and solve it's not it's not we've been very transparent about what we're doing and why and like being because i I do think that like you succeed on execution not on ideas there's no new idea under the sun um but like it it has been amazing like honestly we 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 just raised around as you mentioned and people always assume that it was easy for us and it wasn't (laughs) it wasn't uh like it was it was really touch and go there for for a little bit um and the thing that pulled us through was um, talking to our users and hearing over and over and over from them that they couldn't imagine going back to the old way of building software. Um, And so I know it's not just us. And now, you know, our task is just, we have to translate this into something that's um, consumable because everybody's so fucking busy. Everybody's got, you know, a million things clamoring for their attention. And it's on us to explain why it's worth their time and, and their energy and why it's worth learning something new and being a little bit uncomfortable um, because it will pay off. And the, the trick with this is, <clears throat> it's one thing, this isn't a renaissance era of a thing that we did before, like virtualization right. was a renaissance of centralized computing, cloud was, you know, current iterations of things like we have we are drawing on none of the history of operations tooling right if if anything it comes from the history of debugging database queries (laughs) well and that's really i guess that's what it is is the the practice is in there and it's it's the same way that i look at you're you're unlocking something that's been there the entire time it's just that we never knew how to tap into it the same way that you know we we look at, you know, like, oh, look at that, you know, bees create honeycombs in perfect mathematical structures. And like, oh, look at that, bees are like mathematicians. <laughs> and like, no, the math is figuring out what the bloody bees are. And I, it really is, it's kind of funny that we as humans have this sort of arrogance that like we always get it. Yeah. Oh, look, they're acting like people. Like no, <laughs> every, every system that we're creating is now far more complex and challenging than yeah. the things that we've done up to this point. So you can't yeah. just repeat. Our systems are now emergent. Like they have emergent properties that have nothing to do with any intent that we ever shoved in, into them. Right. And I, I laugh at, so like Randy Schaup, he's, uh, I always love talking with Randy. He says, you know, microservices is so uh, done right. Like we, <laughs> we kind of lived through that in the '90s, and 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 it's we we did all that stuff. Yeah. But we also just because the infrastructure couldn't support it really, and like the practices of development yeah. weren't necessarily there. So that's a renaissance now. So the microservices mm. as a practice is is in a renaissance from what you know. This is not new. It's just that we figured out how to do it right and the infrastructure can support it. Yeah, and, and like hardware had to, like, I think that like, because of the quantity of data that you have to collect in order to do something like this, like uh, it was cost prohibitive when, when it had to be stored in RAM. So like SSDs are a big thing that yeah. made it possible. And in fact, we, we've actually just basically moved our SSD database to um, Lambda functions in S3, which is really freaking cool. Um, but that makes it more like, cost uh, effective for more people 
Um, that's that's the ultimate in like <clears throat> people also don't get that that founder challenge like one you laid out they're like oh yeah you've got a great growing business going back to he's like it's oh it's the quarterly time to go and try and get some funding you're like no you understand this is a grind but yeah. doing what you just talked about you're effectively moving to unpredictable functions with yeah. predictably poor performance <laughs> And yet being able to take that and do yeah. kind of what you did with in memory, which is vastly different in its, in its consumption pattern. Yes. You, you've got a heroic team that's, yeah, <laughs> that's making this happen. Guess how many engineers we have too. <laughs> We've got seven people writing code, covering everything from the storage engine to the UI, UX, all the integrations and everything. So uh, we, we do need to hire a few more people. <laughs> But yeah, they're amazing. But you know what? They are amazing. But my co-founder and I made a very conscious decision not to just go out and hire all of the best people we'd ever worked with or the Facebook engineers. We knew that we're building a tool for the median engineer and for people who are who haven't all shared, you know, we didn't want to hire everyone who shared a, a, a history and, and the same language and the same touch points. You know, we hired people from hack academies, we hired intermediate engineers. And the fact is that when you develop code with observability, um, it's different. You spend way less, you waste less of your time. 40% of an engineer's time, according to the Stripe developer report, 40% of engineering time goes to shit that does not move the business forward, that does not create anything new, that doesn't build anything new. It's just, you're trying to orient yourself, you're trying to find the thing, you're trying to figure out what you did. When you have observability and when you have shifted your pattern so that you're, you're used to looking at it, a lot like you ship with so much more confidence you find bugs so much faster like these these systems that people are are killing themselves to like prop up are terrible because they're just a snowball of shit that nobody understands and they're shipping more code that nobody understands on top of to, to code that nobody understands and like it's it's shit all the way down and that's why you know you've got hundreds of people hundreds of engineers it takes to like keep up one of these systems that honestly a, a couple of teams should be able to develop on and it's just like this is what's radical about this like observability alone doesn't unlock this this high performing team but it is an absolutely necessary prerequisite because you have to be able to see what the fuck you're doing you have to be able to see what you've done and what the difference is and that empowers you to like build the right habits and the right you know everything else but it's it comes first man like it is so hard to do without it but, but that's in, that's what changes people's lives what's cool is we've got enough data now that <clears throat> it's it's less like it's it's less ethereal when we have mm -hmm. like i look at like what nicole forsgren and the folks at the door yes. report have done and like yes. they're they are proving it out and some people used to say like, well, that's like, they're, they're talking to a specific audience. I'm like, yeah. well, obviously they're pulling from that initial <laughs> audience. The audience of people yeah. that contribute to the report. The data's not perfect, but it sure is nice to have some data. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's, it's a broad, like N equals 38. Like this yeah. is a legitimately large data set and yeah. it's been in, the, the same people can come back and see the, the improvements in how they, they do yes. things. And I've gone into more and more big organizations, especially that are now moving the practices of the big orgs are now coming down yes. into mid-sized orgs where they're 
doing more custom in-house developments. Yes. They're offloading infrastructure. We support. are getting better as an industry. Yeah. We are finally, we are getting better. And you really have to have that high level data analysis and collection and, and like processing in order to give us, to reflect back to ourselves, like who we are and what we need to, what we need to do. Totally. So given that you just came off of, of funding, I can ask you a difficult question because <laughs> when you're going into funding, you never want to ask tough questions. True. Because I won't be like, oh, I heard your podcast. I hear your business right. is in trouble now. But <laughs> so to date, you know, you're mm -hmm. all, you're at your four-year foundiversary. What's what's probably one of the hardest problems you think you've had to face as a founder? Oh Jesus Christ! I mean, bar none, the, the hardest was figuring out how to talk about this this stuff. And like, I was sweating blood. You know, I was not sleeping for like two years. They're just, and and it's frustrating and it's irritating because after you've figured out something that resonates with people, it sounds so obvious. And you just, and everybody, it just becomes part of the zeitgeist. Like everybody says it, you know, but like trying to come up with that example or that series of words, like unknown unknowns, that was so fucking hard, you know? And, and, and it's, it's, it's just ephemeral because you don't really own it. You know, it's, yeah. it, that was the hardest thing, but like we've had really interesting and fun, the tech problems are just the easy ones, man. Like <laughs> they're the fun ones, but like the hard problems have been, man, just like trying to figure out how to connect with people and their problems and trying to like keep our chins up through the couple of, there are a couple of really rough years in there where it, I would have put all my money on us failing like year over year. I'm just like, well, can't believe we're still around, you know, <laughs> I give us six months tops. Uh, this is the first year where I haven't felt that way, honestly. So it's well, been rough. It's earned and deserved, but it's <laughs> never easy. You know, no matter how, no matter how many founders I talk to, no matter how many businesses you look at, like we obviously love the hero story at the end. We're like, yeah, I was found. I was yeah, in a coffee bullshit. shop. I wrote, so an, I wrote a name on a napkin. I remember one time it was even like the whole joke of like Cisco Systems was like, it was supposed to be San Francisco Systems, but they <laughs> ripped the paper on the BART. And so they had to register it as, like, as if they wouldn't go to a lawyer and say, can sure. you rewrite that? Like, right. we love these the fun. The myth-making. Yeah. And, wow. and so sadly the hard years get kind of overwritten by the successes. Yeah. And, and I think one leads to the other, you know, the, one of my favorite questions I always love asking, especially folks that are founders like yourself is, and I, I think I totally have stolen this from like Tim Ferriss or, mm -hmm. or, you know, somebody else is like, what's, what's the worst thing that's happened to you that you're the most thankful for? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> You know what? Uh, not being CEO anymore. Yeah. That was a big move, wasn't it? It was. I, I never wanted to be CEO. Um, but it had to be done. Um, but I'm glad that it doesn't have to be done by me anymore. It's, uh, that was one I remembered. You, you were very vocal about not belonging in the role in the, as a traditional, like in what you believe was the bigger requirement of the CEO, you yeah. were always very, very strong on what your, your approach to it. And the funny thing is the more you defended that you shouldn't be the CEO, I think the more people believed that you were the right one. Yeah, but I wasn't, I really wasn't, you know, I, there are things about my temperament. Like I don't bring structure, like the company needs a certain amount of structure and I fight structure, you know? And, and so I was just fighting myself constantly. And it was, 
it was not good. It was not good for me. I need someone to rebel against. <laughs> I need to be the crazy one. I, you know, it's, it, it wasn't good for me. I did it because it needed to be done and because I'm very motivated by doing what needs to be done. Um, but I am very, very grateful that there came a point where I could put that, put that down. It's a, uh, it's a tough, it's a tough decision. And, and it's, there's also phases of, of opportunity, like obviously leading out, building the, t- building the team, co-founding, doing all those first years, like people just kind of like, okay, who's going to be the CEO? Who's going to be the CEO? <laughs> casual and cavalier. Yeah. Uh, and and they did, when you realize like oh boy there's a long lasting effect to how I'm going to have to sit in this role so it's yeah. it is so nice to see people that can successfully transition because yeah. I've seen companies I've seen companies die because of the inability of an individual to step out of function yeah, yeah it's hard man it becomes especially when you're you're you know when your work is so much of who you are yeah. it is it is very hard to set your ego aside it is very hard to you know, and, and like when you start a company, it's like your child, you know, like I don't have kids. I'm never going to have kids, but I imagine this is what it feels like. You know, you personally identify with it at every stage, um, but, it, but it has to grow up, you know, and if you've done your job, it grows up and it outgrows you. So it is a, uh, I can, having four of them myself, I, I not start oh, children, so okay. my little startups, Sure, uh, but I, I, I agree. You know, there's a point where you say like you put as much as you can into it to build yeah. the foundation. And then at some point you say, you have to step away. They're going mm-hmm. to make a decision that I fundamentally disagree with. Yeah. But I have to give them the, the freedom to do so, mm-hmm. so that I can, you know, guide them in a different way. So it's not that you are not being CEO does not mean you're not fundamental to the day-to-day operations and success of this company. What it means is that you're not wholly and totally responsible because you can then affect things in a way that you can do better than. Yeah. I can actually pay attention to my actual strengths, which are not attending meetings and sending out schedules and all those things that just kill my soul. (laughs) It's a, it's another sort of myth of the founder that like, Oh, you know, you just, you're just going to do one amazing thing. Like there's, there's a lot of uncomfortable shit you got to do. And I literally am, am writing a, like a whole sort of, uh, you know, it's an ebook at this point type of idea, like a small tome, but it, it, it's getting bigger by the day. And it's just mm-hmm. literally called doing uncomfortable shit. Oh, nice. Everything you do is going to have to be like, I hate accounting. I, I suck at accounting, but yeah. I got to do a certain amount of it because I can't just not do it. And I can't give it to somebody if I don't know how to tell at least part of the story. Yeah. But eventually well, I can And being CEO is, is so much a series of never getting to look at anything that's ever working. Because as soon as it's working, you have to move on to the next thing. And right. so you spend your life just immersed in the most fucked up shit. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's also just like your, you know, there's, there's the people side of the world. There's the sales side of it. There's so many things and just coordinating your day-to-day hours in a day yeah. can be soul crushing. <laughs> I, I've your time worked, is never your own. No, it doesn't belong to you. No, and, and that's a, I, I'm, I go through phases in my own calendar where I like overly inject myself into some of the processes that in, the, in the work. 
And then all of a sudden you find it just goes and runs away. And all of a sudden, yeah, your calendar just looks like a losing game of Tetris. You get yeah. no sense of flow. You get no sense yeah. of completion. Never. And then it, it will personally drag me out of, and I start to then go, am I doing the wrong job or am I at the wrong company? Yeah. And when you're the founder, you'd have the same discussion with yourself. And that's just because you're stuck doing stuff that's really uncomfortable and, you know, so it's, it's a blessing to see people that can reach a point where they can bring somebody in to pick up that uncomfortable shit and then have it be their talent and then let you kind of move on so that you're, the problems you're solving are problems you can solve that no one can or that no one could at the speed you could. So, or at least it's different shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make different mistakes from time to time. It's necessary. So anything too is sort of like the, the people burn rate. Uh, you've got a very neat way, like you're very good about how you give people autonomy of schedule. You've, you've got remote folks, you've got a bit of this, you've got like all the right things that people would say like, that's it, like Honeycomb's a perfect place to work, but it's also yeah. not perfect for everybody. No, it's, and no, it's, it's tough definitely to manage, not. right? Yeah, well, I do really, I really, I think I've come to the conclusion that I will never again work for a company that is not distributed friendly. I really love what it does to the culture. Just decoupling, you know, the the act of doing your work with being in a place, you know, having your butt in one seat at any given time. And I really like what it does to the management team too, because it forces you to be outcome oriented and not pay attention to how many hours are they working? How much do you see them? How much do you like them? It really makes you like pull that conversation up to where it should be, which is what are the expectations? Um, are we aligned? And and are you getting the work done? Yeah, because it's a <clears throat> the culture of presence is a dangerous one because it creates the sense that being at your desk is is contributing to the positive outcome of the business. Yeah, and it's and not. No, no. I uh, sadly because what, what my pattern of work and my pattern of productivity personally is that I often think more effectively when I'm like on a bike or I, if I'm going I mean, it's for going a run. Out walking or, throughout yeah. the city. Yeah. So you get a chance to like. I've made a point. Sometimes I purposefully detach for like ninety minutes in the day. I'm just like that's it going for a bike ride up the hill yeah. and and it does two things one it unlocks your mind from you're tethered to a to-do list and the moment that i can't physically type i can't do anything else i'm literally on a bicycle so my mind suddenly just yeah it, it's I, i'm like elon musk's brain all of a sudden mm -hmm. just like all this shit just comes pouring out and you're like aha and when i get back I'm likely way more productive and I've yeah. proven it. And, and even by more doing so, that, you're giving permission to everyone around you to do the same thing. Right. And I often, I, I would bet that I work way harder coming out of that because I oh, yeah. have a weird sense of personal guilt that I wasn't online <laughs> directly available for 90 minutes. But we, we all overestimate how productive we are when we're sitting at our desk, just staring off into space. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've worked in a couple of teams where, we struggled with the concept of, of a remote workforce. And I was lucky that I actually, at one organization I worked at, I, 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 I was in one office in a, literally a different part of the country than I'd ever lived. So I was living in Vancouver, got a job at a company, and they had a Toronto office, but it didn't have a strong IT presence. The whole data center, everything was in, in the West Coast. And so when I moved back, 
And I said, I've got to move back because of, of, of uh, family changes and issues that I need to deal with. I said, okay. So like my thought is I'm going into this to my boss's office to say, I'm going to have to leave the company. Can you just let me work remotely for a little while? And before I even said anything, he says, okay, um, well, let's just call the printing company and get your new business cards with the Toronto office on them. I'm like, oh, wow. But having worked locally for two years or three years, I built the trust in my patterns of work that I could take it remotely. Mm. But we had never hired remote workers before. But then within a year, we suddenly had lots of remote staffers. And we'd, because we've learned like, oh, okay, it works in, in different teams. It works in different patterns. So it's, it's cool. I, I'm with you. You know, yeah. it's it's the future, and also just as, as a justice issue, it makes no sense to only create opportunities for people who can already afford to live in the San Francisco Bay Area. They're just right. kind of fucked up. Yeah, there's a lot of people, you know, and in the end, you're like, so you want everybody to be locally? Okay, perfect. What happens when you want to sell an EMEA? Right. Yeah, are you going to pick up the team and and move and them to? And this shit is to... <laughs> really hard to bolt on after the fact. It's really yes. really hard to bolt on later. You really need to get it right early. Well, it's because I think it's as the classic thing goes to say culture is the way they act when you're not around. Mm -hmm. And when you create the trust in the, in the culture early that you're empowering people to have autonomy over their day and their hours, they will self-select into good patterns. If they don't, they wouldn't have, no matter, you couldn't have sat in front of them and, and made them stick to a schedule anyway. So that- This is true of senior people. I, I think that ah, we haven't yeah. really yet figured out quite as an industry how to, how to bring junior folks along, how to, I know we're running out of time here, but like, I think that over the next few years, like that's the next big challenge for us as an industry is to figure out how to scale this to less senior people. I like that. That's a good point. There you go. Next podcast acquired. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the next generation. It is cool. It is cool. And it's a tough battle. You're right. It's funny. I forget sometimes that I'm like, oh, of course, because I've been yeah. I'm like old like dirt. So I, <laughs> of course, I've, I'm comfortable with working remotely because I can, I don't want to go drink during the day right. <laughs> like I would have if I was 24 years old. Right. Uh, I've, I've adapted to different life patterns. <laughs> So say we all. Well, I tell you, Charity, it is uh, a learning experience and a pleasure every time I get to spend some mic time with you. Thanks for having me on. It's really I'm, a fun chat. I'm excited by Honeycomb. I'm excited by following in the footsteps of the power of observability. Yay. 2020 that's coming up in Austin in September this coming in 2020. I'm very certainly going to tap you and folks from your team. I'd love to have, cool. I'm on the review board there. Uh, you've got a, a strong voice in, in how we're changing the way that we create and consume IT. So I'll, I'll be hitting you up for, for stuff there. Um, and I look forward that. to it. So how, if folks want to read more, talk to you, what's the best way for them to do so? Um, my blog is at charity.wtf. Uh, I tweet at twitter.com slash mipsy tipsy and all the honeycomb stuff is at honeycomb.io and I, I this is the last thing the never the things you never asked me you got three minutes to go mipsy tipsy where what did it come from as a guy who's like uh, disco posse i've got the odd as one of the otter handles but you you win it was my it was my everquest monk's name
Nice. Very cool. No, it was my enchanter. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, at the time when I was like, uh, oh, Twitter, what's this? I'm probably not going to use this thing. Uh, Mipsy Gypsy. And then, you know, it was 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now I, I, I constantly do this where, you know, people will scream across the hall, disco posse. Like they, <laughs> they don't know, they, they know that's the, the handle more than, than the identity. So right. awesome. Well, Charity, thank you very much. Uh, have a, uh, we're recording this before the holidays. So I'll say happy holidays. I hope you and the team have a great one. Congratulations on the funding. And uh, yeah, we'll catch up again in 2020. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's starting again. Grab a cup of joe and get your friends.